Great stuff. Let's just read a few verses to start with, shall we? From Psalm 119. It's that very long psalm in the middle of the Old Testament. There's a lot of uses, that's actually. There's a famous story about uh, a Scottish lord who was about to be executed on the scaffold. And he had an idea that uh, if he just hung around for long enough, the pardon would come through. I didn't want them to kill him just before the pardon arrived. And so... Uh, uh, as he led him to the scaffold, he said, I have a final request. And he said, what's your final request? He said, I want you to sing a psalm. Yeah, I, I, what psalm would you like me to sing? Psalm 119. <laughs> and sure enough, before they reached the final verse of it, the pardon had come through and he lived a long and happy life. Worth remembering if you ever get, find yourself in that situation. However, most of us won't be, but uh, it's still useful to read some of these verses. It's the psalm that tells us more about the Bible's attitude itself than anything else in the Old Testament. So, Psalm 119, verse 105 says this, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I've taken an oath and confirmed it, that I will follow your righteous laws. I have suffered much. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept, O Lord, the willing praise of my mouth and teach me your laws. Though I constantly take my life in my hands, I will not forget your law. The wicked have set a snare for me, but I have not strayed from your precepts. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. And that's just one stanza of the psalm, but you can see what it's saying. That whatever happens to you in your life, that's got to be the centre of it. That's absolutely firm, because the Bible, Ray was quite right in his prayer, wasn't he? The Bible is God's word. It's something that God has said directly to us, and it's the foundation of everything else that makes up our worldview and our approach to life and everything else. It's not the same in every religion. One of the things that fascinated me when I first studied the Hindu scriptures was how many contradictions there are in them. <laughs> and if you say to a Hindu, why are there so many different competing views in the Hindu scriptures? They tell us, it's not a problem. They're just the words of men, the words of human beings who are trying to describe what cannot be described, to put into words what cannot be put into words. And so naturally they make mistakes and they fail to express themselves properly. It happens all over the place. And that's the attitude that some religions do have to the scriptures, not the Bible. The uh, Jews and, and, and Christians after them have always believed that what God has said is absolutely key to everything else. I suppose the key passage for Christians probably is in Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 3, and this famous passage says this, From infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, connecting, training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Scripture is absolutely reliable and is absolutely indispensable. God breathed. That's an interesting word. It's the Greek word theopneustos, which you don't find anywhere else in the New Testament. In fact, nowhere else, I think, in classical literature. It's a word that Paul seems to be making up just so that he can express exactly what he's got in his mind. Now, most of our translations, of course, uh, translate it as inspired. And it's been that way since about 400 AD. And it's a funny thing because inspired means something that you take into yourself, doesn't it? It means breathing in. Like, you know, you see, I don't know, Bukayo Saka scoring a wonderful goal and you feel inspired by it. Oh, that's amazing. It's something that comes from outside in. But Theopneustos means something that's breathed out. It's expired, not inspired. So it's a very odd translation we have. 
And what that, 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 that means is something as intimate and as close to God as you can possibly get. Uh, somebody's breath is very personal to them, isn't it? And if you're ever sitting next to somebody on a bus who's just had a Big Mac with extra entrance, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. When you smell somebody's breath, you can either very much like to be with them or not like to be with them. And uh, somebody's breath is a very intimate thing. You know, when you're holding your child or your grandchild close to you and sleep in your arms and you feel their breath on your neck, it's a very close, intimate mo moment, isn't it? That's what the word uh, theopneustos is, is, is telling us. The God's word is as close to God as you can get. Now, we live in a culture, as you know, where facts get checked again and again because we are so conscious in our culture of how easy it is to fake stuff. You can make yourself look much better on Instagram than you actually look in the flesh. Or if you go on dating apps and things like that, there are all sorts of ways of doctoring pictures so that you look really good. We know too, possibly it is now, with uh, uh, new technology for students to cheat in their exams by getting something um, on their computer to write their essays for them. Uh, we know how easy it is to fake photographs. The internet's been full over the last few weeks of pictures of uh, Donald Trump being led in, in, in a handcuffs to prison. And, and, and it's, it, it's all just made up. Very convicting pictures, very well done. We're very conscious of how many lies people tell. And in our culture, we're, we're very conscious of how difficult it is to get to the truth about anything. So when Christians say this book that they have, which is hundreds and thousands of years old, is incredibly reliable, it's absolutely trustworthy, it's the closest thing to God that you can get. You can understand why people say, oh, come on. You can't really believe that. The Bible's been through so many changes. It's, uh, it's been there through so many centuries. It's been copied so many times. Surely, now, it's completely different from what was first written. This morning, I said, we'll have a look at three questions that uh, uh, are important to establish if you're going to defend the Bible to anybody else. The first thing is, has it been changed? Have we got the words we're supposed to have? Uh, uh, the second one is, have we got the right books in the Bible? Or are there others that could be in there? Are some of the books that are in there a bit, a bit dodgy, a bit spurious? Uh, uh, I, I, and third, how about the claims that the Bible makes? Isn't the Bible full of errors? So that's where we're going. And uh, I'm going to make some of these slides because one thing, I've been struggling with this thing all afternoon to get it to work, and uh, some of it's just not come up right. So I'll come back to this bit next week when we talk about what Scripture is. But oh, this one I'll stick with. What uh, uh, theologians say is going on in the Bible, according to itself, according to the Christian uh, view of Scripture, is concursive action. I think it was Jim Packer who invented that phrase in one of his books. And concursive means two things that run together. Um, uh, the verb curo in Latin means to run, and con means with. So it's two things running with one another, side by side. And uh, it means that the Bible is, first of all, God's word. That all the way through, it is something that God has said. You can't change it, because everything in there comes from God. You can't you get the nice bits you like, and oh, that's God, that's definitely, don't fancy that, no, that can't be God. No, it's all inspired by God. But running along with that, it's a human book as well. And it's a book where, yeah, this is where we get some of the words on the slide, sorry. That shouldn't say Jesus, but I don't know what's going on this slide. But anyhow, it's a human book as well. There are human uh, aspects to it. The Bible authors never uh, tried to claim that they hadn't written a thing. 
You don't find uh, Isaiah or Paul saying, oh, I, I, no, no, this is not my book. It just, uh, it just appears yes, and, uh, on the map one morning. It's just there. It's a miracle. It's by God. Nothing to do with me. No, you can see the evidence of authorship all over the Bible. You can see how different people's style is mirrored in what they actually produced. You can see bits where uh, they actually admit to putting it together themselves. Uh, the, the, the writer of Luke and Acts, Luke says at the start of his gospel, Poor Theophilus, I've written this for you because there are so many people writing partial accounts, I thought it's time somebody sat down and put out in order what really happened in the life of Jesus. I have sweated over this. I worked at this. This is not something I dashed off in a five-minute coffee time. This is my hard work. And you can see that happen in, 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 in many of the books. There are some parts of the Bible, obviously, where the writer doesn't know completely what he's saying. And there's more there than he realizes. When Isaiah, for instance, talks about this baby who's going to come, or Micah talking about the great leader who's going to come from Bethlehem one of these days and, and, and who's going to represent God's ideal king, that kind of thing, they had no idea what they were talking about, really. When Isaiah talks in Isaiah 14 about Lucifer and how he fell from heaven, he wasn't intending to write a history of the origins of the devil or something like that. So sometimes God does catch up people through the Holy Spirit and make them say things that they didn't actually intend to say in the first place. But ultimately, the Bible is a human book as well as a divine book, and those two things can never be separated. It's a bit like Jesus. He was God all the time, and he was human all the time while he was down here. And those two things could never be separated. You'd never get people turning up asking Jesus to do a miracle for them, only for the disciples to say, oh, no, no, sorry, sorry, stop being God today. Um, come back on Tuesday. He's gone on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, but not the rest of the time. It wasn't like that. He was always God, and yet he was always human too. And you could never separate the divine element from the human element. Now, that is what basically Christians believe about the Bible. There's a ridiculous slide. Let's leave that completely. So... If the Bible is inspired by God, breathed out by God, what does that actually mean? One or two things we have to get clear. First of all, it doesn't mean that every word in the Bible is original and unique. Because the Bible includes all sorts of different material. For instance, if you look at the book of Ezra in the Old Testament, you'll find that a large part of Ezra is records of the Persian government. <laughs> but, and you find official decrees of uh, the clerks um, in Babylon uh, telling uh, the people of Israel what they can actually do. Now, nobody says that the person who wrote that, that uh, document on behalf of the Persian king was uh, uh, inspired by God himself. But God has taken those documents and made them part of his inspired word. If you look at the book of Chronicles, uh, for example, you'll find in there that it says uh, uh, all of these things come from, and it names various other books, are these things not written in the book of Jasher? And you think, oh, I don't know, I've never seen the book of Jasher. In fact, nobody has in our day. But God has taken things from those secular histories and made them part of his word. When you look at the book of Proverbs, you'll find there's a whole section which starts, have I not given you 30 sayings? And then there are 30 sayings, one after another. And if you compare them to the Egyptian book, The Wisdom of Amenemope, you find they check out exactly. What's happened is that the writer of that part of Proverbs has taken those words from Egyptian writing, written by a pagan author, but nonetheless representing the wisdom of God, and put them in a Christian or in a Hebrew context. And, uh, of course, it's not quoting them just a... a completely the way they were originally, but it's using those thoughts and those ideas and those words as part of Scripture. Second, inspiration doesn't mean that uh, 
Well, no, some other examples of that. Micah and Isaiah share material. If you look at Isaiah chapter 2, it talks about the mountain of the Lord being higher than all of the other hills. You find exactly the same thing in Micah chapter 4. Who borrowed from who? Micah from Isaiah? Isaiah from Micah? We really don't know. But they lived at the same time, and clearly one of them looked at what the other was saying, well, that's a good bit, I'm having that. And so it appears in the Bible, in a slightly different context, saying slightly different things, but very much the same kind of thing. Second Peter and Jude also share material. Second Peter chapter 2 contains uh, uh, material about uh, uh, wicked teachers who have got nothing to contribute at all and who are impostors and hypocrites, and you find the same kind of thing, I think, up in Jude, in the same words, the same examples, the same pictures. Some of the Psalms repeat material. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, which starts, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. It's almost identical. Not quite. And differences are quite significant. But it's almost exactly the same as one another. Jude, second last book in the New Testament, quotes from books that are written, that are apocryphal writing, that never made it into the New Testament. Clearly Jude thought those particular bits were worth having, and so he used them. Uh, Paul quotes Greek poetry. Uh, when he writes to Titus in, in uh, the island of Crete, he says, uh, Cretan poets have said this, and uh, all Cretans are liars. And uh, when he's preaching in Athens, he talks about uh, uh, one of your own poets has said, in him we live and move and have our being. Clearly, he was pretty literary. He knew those things, and he was able to use them. Now, that doesn't make those things inspired by themselves, but it is it's one of the things that God has chosen to make part of his word. And so you could go on. I'll, I'll leave that one. Second, inspiration doesn't mean that every word is exact. You sometimes get people say, ah, here is a contradiction in the Bible. In fact, once when I was chaplain in the school in Exeter, I had a rush of, brain, of uh, blood to the one morning just before I did a chapel service, and in my talk I said, okay, so if any of you guys out there can show me a contradiction in the Bible within the next week, a genuine contradiction, I'll give you 20 quid. Now, they're all pretty moneyed kids at extra school, but even so, 20 quid was, was reasonable. So I had all kinds of people coming to me with contradictions that they said they'd found in the Bible. I had one group of lads who went onto the internet and found one of those websites that got 200 contradictions in the Bible, and they just presented it with a list. I'm not having this, no. You've got to tell me which one you're having. And, and uh, we had a long, long argument about it in the, in, in the playground. But the upshot was, in a week, none of them come up with a real contradiction. Because sometimes things that look like contradictions aren't. For example, look at the phrase three days in the book of Joshua. This is one that people often say, ah, it shows you that the book of Joshua isn't historical. Because uh, Joshua 11 says this, Go through the camp and tell the people, get your provisions ready. Three days from now you will cross the Jordan to go in and take possession of the land. Okay, the Israelites are going across the Jordan into the promised land in just three days. Right, okay, we've got that. Then you read on, and the spies are sent out into Jericho, and Rahab hides them, and she said to them, Go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go on your way. They're going to be late down by the riverside then, aren't they? Because that's another three days to add on. They've taken some time to get to Jericho, and now they're going to hide in the hills for three days. Presumably they hide there for three days, and then maybe take a day to get back to the camp. And you read on in Joshua 2.22. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. So they spent that time, and then they've gone back to the camp. And what happens? Well, once they get back... And they deliver the report, Joshua takes people down to the river. And you think, right, now we're going over. And no, after three days, the officers went throughout the camp saying, get yourselves ready because tomorrow we're going. So three days, six days, nine days, ten days? 
And so people say, oh, it's, it's completely wrong, isn't it? The time scheme is, is crazy. Actually, no. <laughs> because three days is a phrase that simply means a few days. It's like in France, if you say, uh, oh, you're on holiday, how long are you going for? They will either say to you, oui jour, quinze jour, if it's a summer holiday. Oui jour means eight days. Quinze jour means 15 days, two weeks. And it's just a rough figure. If they go away for their oui jour holiday, and, you know, you're expecting them back, eight days is next Monday, and there they are, back home on Saturday. Oh, did you come home early? What went wrong with the holiday? No, it was eight is just a, a nominal number. It just means for about a week. And casual means about a fortnight. And it's the same thing with three days in the Bible in that kind of a way. Okay, there are places where three days means three days. But in the book of Joshua, it's just a, a phrase that's being to say, a few days from now, we'll go over the Jordan. Okay, hide yourself for a few days in the hills. Go back to the camp. And a few days after that, you'll go across. There is no contradiction really involved. That's a minor, minor tiny thing. Much more important is things like this one. First boss. Some of us were talking this morning about the fact that the Jehovah's Witnesses, now that uh, the coronavirus has receded, are becoming very, very um, uh, active once again uh, this weekend. We had a letter through the door at our house, uh, which obviously was one that everybody in our area has had, and it was handwritten. It was a letter about, dear disholder, are you worried about peace in the world? The Bible has the answers, etc., etc. And they're, they're, they're putting a lot of work and effort clearly into writing individual letters to individual households in our area, targeting them and trying to get hold of them. Now, why can't the Jehovah's Witnesses just believe the same as everybody else about the Bible? Well, well, there are many reasons. One of them is because they don't believe that Jesus actually is God. And one of the things that they base that on is the fact that they're, in their view, he is just the first person that God created the first prototype for the whole human race. And so that's what gives him something special. It's not that he's God himself. And they go to uh, Colossians chapter 1 to prove that. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And they say, there you are, you see. Jesus was actually born. He was the firstborn of creation. That just means God created him before he created anybody else. And that doesn't work either. Because the word firstborn doesn't always mean literally the first in the family. David is talked about in, in, in the Bible as God's firstborn from his family. <laughs> and uh, David, as you know, was not the eldest in his family. He was the last of the line. And so clearly, the word firstborn simply means the one who's central, the one who's preeminent, the one who has all the power and the authority. In a Jewish family, the firstborn was the one who took the place of the father if the father was away on business, or if he died or something like that. The eldest son, usually, would become the most important person, would take charge of the household and its finances and things like that. But it didn't have to be the actually biologically firstborn. And so firstborn, when Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, it means he's the one who takes on the Father's authority and the Father's position. He's not making a biological claim about Jesus. Fourth thing, uh, inspiration doesn't mean that every word is literally true. For example, in the Bible, you'll find the words, there is no God. <laughs> now that's interesting. But it's not what the Bible is actually saying, because it comes from the two Psalms that I mentioned before that are almost identical, and it starts, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And you find plenty like that in Scripture. Not necessarily what the Bible itself is saying, but what it's quoting. Uh, for example, uh, Ecclesiastes 10.19. Ecclesiastes 10 is a fantastic uh, picture. 
picture of what a fool is supposed to look like. Foolishness is defined in Ecclesiastes chapter 10. In the middle of it, you find this verse. A feast is made for laughter, wine makes life merry, and money is the answer for everything. I think, hang on a minute. Ecclesiastes has just spent quite a few chapters going on about why money isn't the answer to everything. It talks about riches being deceptive and just, you know... Snatching after the wind, not, not, not finding what God really has for you. So why has he suddenly changed his mind? And the answer, of course, is he isn't. In the middle of that chapter, he's simply quoting the sort of things that fools say. Feast is made for laughter. Wine makes life merry. But money, <laughs> money answers every problem you've got. And uh, Kohelet, the writer of Ecclesiastes, is saying that is what a fool says. So it's a definition of foolishness. It's not what Ecclesiastes is saying is the truth. Uh, food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both there in 1 Corinthians Paul's talking about one of the little tag sayings the Corinthians had in their church he's saying look it's stupid it's unbiblical it's wrong and so it's simply quoting something that's not right Isaiah chapter 7 Isaiah goes to see King Ahaz who's worried stiff about going into battle against two kings allied themselves with a third and they're marching against Israel and uh, um, Isaiah says to Ahab, look, there, it's not going to be a problem. But, and God wants to reassure you. He wants to set your mind at rest. So ask of the Lord anything you want, uh, any sign, and God will confirm it to you. And Ahaz simply says in a very sort of godly kind of a way, I will not put the Lord to the test. And that sounds very spiritual, doesn't it? But it's ducking away from the fact that God is saying to him, listen, test me out. I'll prove I'm telling the truth. And so because he doesn't really want to fight the battle, because he's scared stiff, he, he, he says, no, no, I'm not going to do that. And Isaiah gets very angry and says, you're going to do your sign anyway. A baby's going to be born in your court called Emmanuel. And then you start getting some of those precious promises in the Old Testament, don't you? So not everything in there uh, is necessarily what God is saying. And we need to read the Bible sensibly to see that. And fifth and finally, inspiration doesn't mean that no words have been changed before they reached us. Because quite clearly, some of the books of the Bible are not in their original form. God has allowed them to be edited. And that is part of the inspiration process. For example, if you look at the book of Je uh, um, Jeremiah, one of the longest uh, books you will ever read in the Bible, this is the way that Isaiah's message stacks up. Isaiah wrote through the reigns of four, if not five, different kings. And it, this is the way that the book is organised as it is nowadays. But if you look at when those prophecies were written, in which, which kings were on the throne when that happened, what you get is a picture a bit like this. <laughs> if you rearrange Jeremiah's book chronologically, in the order in which Jeremiah got these messages coming to him from God, it would look like that. Completely different. You get a bit of this and a bit of that, then back to the first thing, then back to the second thing, the second thing again, then the third thing, and so it goes on through. And so editing can be part of the process by which God brings his word to us too. Oh, that's there. Okay. So, let's get to our three questions, just very quickly. Can we be sure what the Bible originally said? Well, yes, we can. We have better manuscript evidence for the Bible than for any other work of ancient literature. One of the great stories is uh, uh, Constantine von Tischendorf, or forgive me his full title, Lobegott Friedrich Constantine von Tischendorf. Great German name. And he was a guy who was a German Bible scholar in the early 19th century. Now, Tischendorf... Uh, was living at a time when Bible scholarship was as sceptical as it was possibly to get, possible to get, especially in Germany. And lots of people were saying, we will never actually know what the Bible originally says because the manuscripts we've got are not that good. And uh, Nischendorf decided 
as a textual scholar at Leipzig, that he had a job to do. He had to find the original text, as far as he could do it, of the Old Testament. People sometimes object, don't they? You can't know what the Bible originally said because we don't have the original manuscripts. To which the only answer is, yeah, but we don't have the original manuscripts of anything that was written about that period. Because the materials on which they were written have crumbled away in the meantime. All we've got for any ancient book is a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. So the question then becomes, just how far back can you go? And how much do these copies back one another up? And he was convinced that there must be um, uh, older uh, parts, uh, older manuscripts of the Bible than they had found at, at all at that point. And uh, he was the guy who discovered this thing on the left-hand side here, Codex Sinaiticus, the only Bible manuscript that I know of that has its own website. And uh, you can read the whole thing online. Uh, he believed other manuscripts must still exist, and he went out to find them. The way he did it was, uh, well, forget about the accused of stealing it bit. Uh, I'll tell you more about that later on. This, he went to this monastery here. This is a monastery of St. Catherine's in, in Egypt, and it goes back at least till 600, possibly 500 AD. One of the oldest places in the world. It had a big library. It had existed for hundreds of years, and Tischendorf was convinced that somewhere in that library, which was a bit of a jumble, I just had all the ancient things in it. There must be uh, a, a manuscript of the Old Testament that the world hadn't seen for years and years. And so what he did was he went there. This is how he looked at the start of his life. As you'll see later on, he was a bit um, more portly later on because he liked his dinner and he ate big, good German dinners. But he wrote at the start of his career uh, a letter to his girlfriend, his fiancée, saying, I am confronted by a sacred trust of establishing the original text of the Old Testament. And so he, he uh, tried to uh, visit uh, the, 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 the monastery um, in, in, uh, the, at the bottom of, of Sinai. Eventually he got permission to go there, went there in 1844, and there he found a manuscript of 129 pages, which he recognised instantly was the oldest manuscript he had ever seen of the Old Testament. This was far, far older than anything that there had ever been before. And uh, he managed to gain permission to take part of the manuscript home. He got too excited about it, mind you. And uh, he, he uh, said, but this is valuable, it's important. Said, oh, is it? Okay, well, you won't, can't have it then. And they gave him a third of it to take back them, just 43 pages. And they hung on to the rest of it themselves. And uh, where it was, a pretty remote area, here's a, a Google Street View picture of, of where St. Catherine's Monastery is. And uh, he went there on a camel, but, oops, sorry, I'm going the wrong way here. But if you walked, uh, according to Google, it will take you 90 hours to get there from Cairo. It wasn't a pleasant journey in the 19th century. He was really committed to what he was doing. But when he got there, he got into the monastery, which again was difficult, but we've got no time to tell that story. You had to be hoisted up the wall into a basket in a basket because there was no front gate. You had to be uh, allowed in through a window in the wall. And uh, when he got there, he couldn't find anything until he was almost ready to go home. It was getting pretty chilly at that time of year. It's not always warm in Egypt. And just before he packed and got on his camel, in visiting the library of the monastery in the month of May, I perceived in the middle of the great hall a large and wide basket full of old parchments. And the librarian, who was a man of information, told me that two heaps of papers like these had already been committed to the flames. It was my surprise to find amid this heap of papers a considerable number of sheets of a copy of the Old Testament in Greek, which seemed to me to be one of the most ancient I had ever seen. And so when the librarian said, oh, we've thrown away two baskets, he said, oh, no, 
So you may have thrown the rest of this manuscript away. That's dreadful. Let's have a look for it now. And the monks were, strange man. No, we're not going to do that. And so he was sent home with his 43 uh, uh, pages. And that was all he had. Even from that, he was able to do an edition of those parts of the Old Testament, which was far better than anything that scholars had before. But uh, that was all he could do. And so in 1845, uh, another Russian scholar went to the monastery and claimed to have seen 347 pages of this stuff. He was only allowed to take two with him, though. And we've never seen those two pages, so he probably wasn't telling the truth. But for uh, Tischendorf, as you can imagine, this was horrific because that manuscript was in there and he just couldn't get his hands on it. So he went back. Next, he could raise some money to do it because he wasn't a wealthy man. In 1853, he went back to the, 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 the place again. And the only thing he found this time was another fragment of another page which was being used as a bookmark in other pages. And he managed to take that one home with him as well. But he knew the whole thing was there somewhere. And it wasn't until he got back in 1859 that he located the whole thing. And he was able to take it to Cairo to work on it there. And from there, he persuaded the monks that uh, they ought to present it to the Tsar of Russia. The Tsar of Russia was in charge of their territory. He was the patron of their Orthodox Church at that particular time. And uh, he persuaded them that if they let them keep it in Moscow, that would be a place where people could work on it. And uh, the, the Tsar would be so grateful he'd give 9,000 rubles to the Orthodox Church, which he did. But that's another story completely. So what happened this last time? Well, he got there, and he spent a long time looking around the library, didn't find anything. And then just before he was about to go home, defeated, he had a walk in the garden with the economos of the, the, the monastery, who I think is the steward who looked after things and organised the meals and things. This is the story in his words. I told my Bedouins on the 4th of February to hold themselves in readiness to set out with their dromedaries for Cairo on the 7th, when an entirely fortuitous circumstance carried me at once to the goal of all my desires. On the afternoon of this day, I was taking a walk with the steward of the convent and neighbourhood, and as we returned towards sunset, he begged me to take some refreshment with him in his cell. Scarcely had he entered the room when, resuming our former subject of conversation, oh, they'd been talking, by the way, about the fact that Tischendorf was working on the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was very popular in Jesus' day. In fact, it was the Bible that Jesus and his disciples would have used. And he said, and this, this guy said as they went into the room and put the kettle on, I too have read a Septuagint. And so saying, he took down from the corner of the room a bulky kind of volume wrapped up in a red cloth and laid it before me. I unrolled the cover and discovered to my great surprise not only those very fragments which 15 years ago I'd taken out of the basket, but also other parts of the Old Testament, the New Testament complete, and in addition, the Epistle of Barnabas and a part of the Pastor of Hesamas. These are books that were not part of Scripture, but were read by a lot of early Christians, full of joy, which this time I had the self-command to conceal from the steward and the rest of the community. I asked us, if in a careless way, for permission to take the manuscript into my sleeping chamber to look over it more at leisure. There by myself I could give way to the transport of joy, which I felt, yes. And to cut out a long story short, well, let's let him tell it. I knew that I held in my hand the most precious biblical treasure in existence, a document whose age and importance exceeded that of all the manuscripts I had ever examined during 20 years studying the subject. <coughs> I cannot now, I confess, recall all the emotions which I felt in that exciting moment with such a diamond in my possession. And so it's gone on. Uh, the uh, modern translations of scripture that, uh, that are made nowadays rely heavily on Codex Sinaiticus because that goes back so much further than anything we had up to that point. 
Do you know what also happened? When Sinaiticus became known, the Roman Catholic Church revealed that it had a, a, a manuscript in its own library in the Vatican, which had been neglected for many years, which was as old as Vaticanus, uh, as Sinaiticus rather, and they called it Codex Vaticanus, that's where it came from. And so with those two great 4th century manuscripts, side by side with one another, we were able to establish almost every word of the Old Testament. And yet, when you compare it with the previous documents that we had, from which the Old Testament had been uh, uh, translated for years, there was very little difference. Not a claim, not a story, not an important doctrine was any different from what we'd had before then. We've had even more exciting things happen in our own day, though. The Dead Sea Scrolls found caves like this by the Dead Sea from the 1940s through to, well, the last find was 2017, and who knows how much else there is out there. The Dead Sea Scrolls have taken our knowledge of the Old Testament way, way back further than we ever thought possible before. What happened was in 1947, some Bedouin shepherds were looking after the sheep in the, the, the area uh, around the Dead Sea, it's, it's a very dead kind of atmosphere, very salty. If you go down from Jerusalem, you descend 1,200 feet to this area. It's the lowest uh, below sea level area in the world. And uh, they were looking and uh, going through the barren uh, rocks just with, with their flocks. And to, to, to just amuse themselves, they would throw rocks up on the hillside. Now, there was a reason for that. There was a rumour that when the Romans had swept through in AD 70 and killed and burned and assassinated everybody, some people in that area had hidden their treasure in caves in the hillside. And you couldn't always see the openings to the caves because the sunlight played on, on the rocks and it was all dark. And so they'd throw rocks up on ledges just to see if there was anything there. Uh, and uh, one day, Mohammed ed Deeb, uh, a young shepherd, uh, was doing that towards the end of the day when one of his rocks went up and obviously went into a cave because I could hear this sort of rebounding sound. And then a smash. And it was clear that the rock had hit an old canister, a storage jar, and broken it. Now, it was too late that day to have a look up there. It would be difficult to get to, too dangerous. So he went back to the camp and told his friends about it. And the next morning, before any of them got up, uh, one of his friends got up himself and went up onto the, into the cave where Mahmoud Adib had described it was and had a look at the jars that he found in there. And sure enough, there were some old storage jars. And to his great disappointment, there was no treasure, no gold, no, no, nothing precious, just a bunch of old mouldering manuscripts. And he took the biggest one out, took it back to the camp and showed the others. They spread it out. And if you spread it in here, it would probably go from one side of the, the, the room to the other this kind of width. And they thought, ah, oh, this is not much use, is it? What is it? Um, and they didn't know it, but they were looking at the oldest manuscript of the book of Isaiah that anybody had ever seen. And it was 1,000 years older than the previous earliest manuscript that we had. Uh, and and uh, 100 years older. No, a thousand, no, I'm right, no, a thousand, uh, than, than the previous earliest manuscript we had. And so they thought, well, we don't know what this is about. Maybe we can sell this thing to a shoemaker back in Jerusalem and he can use it for patching up shoes. And they did that. And they sold some of the manuscripts to a, a Syrian shoemaker who was a member of the Orthodox Church. And he was going to use it as patching for shoes, 
But he stuck it in a jar in the corner of his workroom and just left it there for a little while. And then it got on his conscience. He thought, this is probably some sort of holy book. I ought to see what my bishop thinks about this. And so he got hold of the bishop and showed him it. And the bishop didn't know what to make of it either. But he hung to it. And uh, uh, in, early, in 1947, they managed to sell some of these manuscripts to a, a dealer uh, who uh, got hold of uh, um, Eliezer Sukenik, who's one of the, the great uh, Israeli uh, manuscript experts of his day, and sold them to him. And he was so excited because he realized the value of some of this stuff. He didn't have the big one, though, the Isaiah scroll. That belonged to the archbishop, and uh, uh, that, was, that was somewhere else. I'll tell you where in a moment. 1949, Sir Kenick realized this was explosive stuff. So the first excavation took place. It was possible for the first time to get together a group of people who could go down there and have a look for more caves. And what they found was incredible. All sorts of other caves with manuscripts in them. And meanwhile, in America... The Syrian bishop had left and gone across to America in the meantime, and an advert suddenly appeared on the pages of the Wall Street Journal saying the four Dead Sea Scrolls, biblical manuscripts uh, dating to at least 200 BC, are for sale. This would be an ideal gift to an educational or religious institution by an individual or group. And it was being sold in the paper. Well, people managed to put money together and get those manuscripts too. And the work went on, and in the 1990s, lots and lots and lots of manuscripts came together, and they were finally published, most of the key texts. That's Sukenik, and that's the uh, Syrian uh, bishop who didn't know what he was looking at. And this is what we found. Loads and loads of biblical manuscripts from the Old Testament. And uh, uh, you'll see that there are some books that are not there at all. Esther, for instance, because this seems to be the library of a bunch of people who didn't like women very much. And so Esther's missing. Um, also, Nehemiah's missing for some reason. We don't know quite why. But there are 36 manuscripts of the whole of the book of Psalms. There's the whole of the books of the law. All kinds of things there. And, of course, 21 uh, manuscripts of Isaiah. The big books of the Old Testament are so well represented. And when you look at them, the amazing thing is that over a thousand-year gap, copied by people who were completely different from the other ones that we knew about up until this point, there were just no differences. This is Isaiah 53 in the uh, Isaiah scroll version. And if you read through it, you'll find there is virtually no difference. A few differences of spelling and word order, but otherwise no difference from what you read in the Bible today. As I say, it was the library of a bunch of monks who seemed to have lived at a place called Qumran, just down the road, and they'd hidden their manuscripts in these jars on the hills because they knew the Romans were coming and they wanted their library to survive. That's what their monastery must have looked like in those days. And so we found all sorts of caves, and there are some of them circled on that picture up there. Um, uh, the, the, the whole area is just a few miles away from Jerusalem, just down the road, uh, before you get to Masada, Herod's great fortress, and as the Romans swept through, they missed these caves entirely. And uh, in those caves, in that area at the north of the Dead Sea, we have the greatest manuscript find for the Bible we've ever had. And as I say, things have kept on going on. The 12th cage, cave was found just as recently as 2017. So, we're pretty good in the Old Testament. And to cut a long story short, and I've got to finish in a moment, I'll, I'll, I'll leave the rest of the, the story until next week, but we've got four major sources for the Old Testament. First of all, there's the Septuagint. We have lots of manuscripts in Greek that were translated from the original Hebrew, and uh, that gives us a good 
steer on uh, what people were reading in Jesus' day and for 200 years before, and how uh, the Hebrew of the, the, the Old Testament was translated into Greek. We also have Hebrew ones, though, because the Masoretic text was put together shortly after Jesus had lived and died. It wasn't put together by Christians either. It was put together largely because of a guy called Rabbi Akiva, who did not believe in Jesus. And he was worried that the uh, early Christian church was using the Septuagint to show that the Old Testament spoke about Jesus. And he was convinced that if you got right back to the Hebrew original, it wouldn't be quite as good for the Christians. And so he got a bunch of scholars together called the Masoretes, for the word Masora, which means tradition. They were the most careful scribes in the world's history. I mean, they played all sorts of little games just to make sure they got it absolutely right. They measured out how many letters there should be in a line, and they never deviated from that. Before they translated the Bible book, they counted up all of the words in it, and uh, which was the middle word, which was the first word, which was the last word, all kinds of things. Many times the name of God was mentioned. And when they'd finished, they checked all of those figures back. And if there was anything wrong with their count, they'd just simply bury that book. They wouldn't allow that copy to go, because the word of God must be absolutely perfect. They played little mind games. Every time they reached the name of God, they'd throw away their pen and get a new one. It was just a way of keeping mind on the job. And uh, when they found a, a manuscript that had flaws in it, they didn't burn it or anything like that because it was the word of God. Even if it was a poor copy. And so they'd bury it. They'd hold a burial for it. And uh, some of the best manuscripts we've got have come from uh, the, 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 the jars at the back of synagogues which contained manuscripts that were supposed to be buried, but nobody had time. <laughs> and so they were still there waiting for burial when we discovered them. So we've got all of that, and that's in Hebrew. And then we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, a completely different line of, 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 of uh, uh, um, translation as well. And uh, they've even got a thing called the Samaritan Pentateuch. And the Samaritan Pentateuch is interesting because if you remember the Samaritans who settled in the, that bit in the middle of the land of Israel and who, with whom the Jews would have nothing to do because they're kind of like Mongol Jews, they developed their own religion, which was pretty close to what the Jews believed. Except that they believed their sacred mountain was not Sinai, but Mount Gerizim, which was in Samaria. And so they did develop their own version of the Old Testament, which had just a few clumsy changes to make it all about Samaria rather than about Israel. And we have copies of the Samaritan Pentateuch. And when you put these four different lines of evidence together, you can establish just about every single word of the Old Testament. Now, I won't go into the, 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 the New Testament, but let me just finish with a comparison that's often made. If you look at the great works of literature, the Iliad, for instance, Homer's great poem in, in, in Greece, that consists of 15,600 lines of poetry. 764 of those lines we're not very sure about. They're in some doubt, which means 5% corruption. The Mahabharata is a very, very big Hindu epic in India, and uh, that consists of 250,000 lines of text. 26,000 of those are in doubt, which is more than 10% corruption. How about the Bible? If you look at the New Testament, we've got 20,000 lines in there, and in doubt are about 40. <laughs> That's the only place where we have any doubt about what it originally said. And they're all lines that are insignificant and don't really matter. You could read them one way, you could read them another, and they would still make perfect sense. And that's less than 0.5% corruption. Books written at the same time as the New Testament? Well, Caesar uh, wrote his history of the wars in Gaul within the century before the New Testament was complete. It's around about the same time in history. We have nine or ten manuscripts of Caesar, 
one of which is pretty dodgy. And uh, the earliest of those manuscripts is a copy of a copy of a copy that came uh, um, 900 years. What am I doing here? I'm sorry. I'm going the wrong way. Caesar first wrote. Let's get that. Yeah, that's right. Then Tacitus, the great Roman historian, we only have two manuscripts left of Tacitus, and the earliest of those is 650 years after he wrote. Livy, doing rather better. We've got 20 manuscripts of Livy, but none of them are complete, and we know he wrote 42 books. So most of Livy's work is missing, and the earliest of those is 350 years after he wrote. How about the New Testament? For the New Testament, we have 6,000 manuscripts in whole or in part. And the earlier of those complete manuscripts cannot be later than 300 years after the book was first written. So that is pretty staggering manuscript evidence. Nobody will tell you, you know, that Caesar's book is in any doubt because we don't have many manuscripts. Nobody will tell you that we don't know anything about Livy because, or what we originally wrote, because, and yet the manuscript evidence for the, for the Old and the New Testament is so much better than anything else we've got. Now that's just the start of the whole thing, and I've got two questions I've not addressed at all tonight. Uh, I'm not. Don't worry, I'm not going to, and uh, I'll leave it to Ray whether we want we sing another song or not. But uh, uh, those two questions I'll pick up with next week. Okay, we can trust pretty much every single word of the New Testament and the Old Testament too. But have we got the right books in there? And do those books disagree with one another? That's what we've got to come back to next week, and we'll finish the whole thing with three things that you can say to somebody who's not a Christian, to show why you believe this to be the case. Let me just pray for a second, and we'll get right back. Heavenly Father, we're racing through some very, very, very complicated stuff, but important stuff at the same time. And I just pray that you'll help us through these facts, which we don't all need to remember, but we need to know a little bit about, to gain confidence that your word is true, it's reliable, we can build our lives upon it, and we can wholeheartedly recommend it to other people without any hesitation whatsoever. Thank you for the way you've attested the value of it and the, the, the reliability of it again and again, down through history. Thank you for the people like uh, um, Sukenik and, uh, and, and uh, uh, Jerome and, uh, and uh, uh, all of these others, um, Tischendorf, who've, who've helped to, in that process. And thank you for the fact that your word still stands where everything else falls over. For your name's sake. Amen.